welcome to the Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Okay. The recorder started. Good morning, everyone. My name is L.A., and I'm a recovering sexaholic. My co-leader here is Mark. And the topic we are sharing on is a question and answer. It's an open meeting with SA and SNN. <clears throat> please turn off any electronics, including mine. And please do not record any of this session. It is being recorded, though. <clears throat> In the spirit of yeah, the fifth tradition, to carry the message, this session is being streamed. No, it's not being streamed live. Uh, rather, it is being recorded. The recorder will not be turned off during this session. If you do not want to be recorded but need to share, we encourage you to attend another rec- non-recorded meeting. Please don't touch the recording equipment. And if you want to share, please come up to the front and sit next to us to use the microphone. And please leave the microphone on the table and don't touch it because it makes noise during the recording. Thank you. Let's begin with a moment of silence for all those still suffering or unable to attend the meeting, followed by the serenity prayer. Serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Thy will, not ours, be done. Amen. <clears throat> okay, again, our topic, for those who just came in, is question and answer. There have been some questions that have been submitted already. If you have other questions, and if you have your cards, write them down, please, and, and give them to us, and we'll try to answer those. <clears throat> and... Um, We'll see how it goes after that, if there are additional questions from the floor. And uh, so let's get started with our questions. I'm going to move this in between us. Hi, I'm Mark. I'm a sexaholic from San Antonio. Um, my sobriety date is December 14th of 2007. Can I just get a quick show of hands of the Essanons in the room? Essanon only, not double winners, Essanon only. Okay. Uh, and so I'm assuming everyone else is essay. So... Just, I just wanted to see who the audience was. Okay, thank you. Um, do you want to grab one of these? The, we have, we've been, we've had five questions submitted, mm-hmm. and uh, trade you that one. Okay, and once you grab that one, and we'll just okay. jump in here. All right. So, some of these are kind of generic essay type questions, and others concern spouses, kids. So the first question, which is submitted, well, they're all anonymous, is what does progressive victory over lust look like to you? <clears throat> this is the intriguing question of the century for sexaholics. And um, I can answer it this way. Way back when, I asked Roy Kay, Roy Kay is the uh, person who wrote all our literature and founded essay. I said, Okay, Roy, why is this progressive victory over loss? It's the thing that's, it's, it's, it's the one thing that everybody interprets whichever way they want. And, um, he said, you know, the first eight years of essay, we didn't even have that word in there. It was victory over lust. You were either victorious in the moment of temptation or you gave into it. I said, well, why did you put it in there? Well, people just thought it was so hard. So we added this progressive victory over lust. But what it really means, what he said, was that as you discover what additional things are triggering to you and uh, where you find yourself 
wanting to lust, you actually add this to your bottom line. And so, you know, we, we say that we have a firm and clear bottom line, but it's actually a firm and clear threshold added to which are things that individually we might find triggering. So it doesn't mean that, well, you know, I'm looking at less pornography than I used to. That was never the intent. And some people sort of take a, a sweep of, of their sobriety and say, well, you know, generally I'm doing this less frequently or, um, um, you know, for less, for, for shorter periods of time, this type of thing. That was never the intent behind including the word progressive in there. It somehow has lost the context in which it was placed in the definition. And, um, I don't know. I've attended meetings in my area in uh, Washington, D.C., where people say, you know, last night I looked at pornography for, for half an hour, but whew, thank goodness I didn't lose my sobriety. <laughs> and we're like, well, you might want to think about that. <laughs> and uh, so it's uh, progressive is, is again, it's, it's adding to, for example, one, one second, uh, uh, reading, uh, you know, titillating headlines, you know, and saying to myself, well, you know, I have to be aware of the news. I've got to be on the, you know, aware of what's going on. So I'll go ahead and want to read an article that I can survive without reading, but that actually the intent behind reading it, if I'm honest with myself, is there's got to be something in here that's, you know, got a little juicy for me. And so that's an example of progressive victory is just not not giving into things like that and, and understanding where my triggers are. Thanks, Ellie. That was that was really that was really good. I like that. That's the best answer I've ever heard for that question. And it's a very common question. Thank you. Um, I don't want to add anything other than yeah, the Harvey's got a part in one of his uh, I don't know if it's his sex with self tapes, but he'll talk about the hidden places of your lust, and that's where the progressive victory over lust hits me, is is as you progress in this program, you find the hidden places of your lust. It's it's all through my brain. It's all through my life. It's in my motivations for things I never dreamed when I first came in trying to stop acting out. So, all right, uh, next question we're going to grab here. Um, what do you do when your wife stops obsessing about your behavior and starts obsessing about other things out of their control? Um, so this has a – yes, sir? I'm Matt. Yes. But I, I wrote that question. Okay. And that was supposed to be in the SNL. Okay. Well, good, because my answer was going to be two words. You do – or do nothing. Uh, nothing you can do. <laughs> So would okay? Would you like to run it? I think theirs is no. Theirs is in an hour. Yeah, next. So I'll put that right there. You can drop it in. Thanks. I was going to sound so smart when I said do nothing. So okay. That's my fault. All right. There we go. Back to you, La. You want one of these? I'll save. I'll save that for last. Okay. Scenario. It says. When a person calls into a hotline for our intergroup and expresses interest for help. Question. At what point do you tell them of the, our sobriety definition? Do you tell them at all during the first call? This is my own approach, but I tell them right away. And um, the reason is because I think they deserve to know sort of truth in advertising. And if they really don't want this, then they don't really want to come to a meeting. Or if they have any questions about it, they may come, they may be curious, they may come in and explore further. But I would want to know, certainly before I got in. I, I knew uh, when I came in, I was against the sobriety definition when I came in, but I came anyway. And... um well, the first eight months or so of my being in the fellowship, I was I was in because I wanted to convince everybody to change the sobriety definition. But I was willing to. I knew I knew what it was, and I was willing to comply with it. I guess somewhere deep inside me, I thought, well, just in case I'm wrong, and I kind of was hedging my bets. 
but I did enough. I had enough willingness to come in and, and comply with it and just see what happened. And boy, did I have another thing coming because I was, I was really totally convinced, but it took me a while. So I would definitely tell them and tell them right away and during the first phone call. In, in our area, we tell people right away and we t- ask them if that's something that they're interested in. And if they are not, and they know that right away in the first phone call, we refer to that, we tell them about the other S fellowships, tell them as best we can what their own sobriety definitions are and give them, refer them to the phone numbers, to their hotlines. We want to be cooperative and we want to give them what they're interested in. But if they have any interest whatsoever, any willingness, we say, well, you know, come, we'll meet you, we'll take you to a meeting, and uh, some stay and some don't. And, and I guess I would take a different approach there. Uh, my experience with, uh, uh, you know, there's no right answer on these things. God's going to bring to the meeting who God has planned to bring to the meeting, in my opinion. And, uh, and, in my mind, when someone calls in, they're still drunk, and I'm, I'm wasting my time trying to lay out too much at, at first because the, the power of the drunk sexaholic to tell himself that, oh, well, that won't work for me, so I won't even try. I would rather, you know, no right or wrong, I would rather get them to a meeting, get them face-to-face, because what saved me was looking at someone in the eye who said, I have four years of sobriety. Because I didn't think four days of sobriety was possible to someone like me. And yet now I was sitting, and I didn't care. Definitions didn't mean it. I just, I don't want to die. And I, me personally, I can't get that across in a phone call. Um, so that's, I would, I would consider them mentally kind of drunk and unstable to make that decision yet. And I would want them to come to a meeting and then let them ask the questions. Cause you know, we all see it and then what is the different and then take them to the book in that, in that time. But that's just me. No right or wrong answer. All right. Uh, I'm going to grab this one. You can have that one last. And, uh, <clears throat> And again, there's another one with no right or wrong answer, and we could do a whole session on this question. Uh, the question reads, I struggle with how much to share about my recovery from sexaholism with my children who are 13 and 9. They know about my recovery from alcoholism, but not my sexual recovery. My wife and I are active in S programs. What should be shared? How much detail? And at what age? Uh, we could do a whole weekend on children in the fellowship and how we do it. My experience is, is I told, uh, both of, I told different ways and different things to my two daughters. They are both adults now, uh, financially independent. Uh, (laughs) that's me doing the happy dance for those on the tape. Um, they're, uh, one's 26 and one's 23. Um, the 26 year old, asked she was older when when she saw the explosion in the house uh she was probably 14 um and at the time i remember telling her all i told her is i, I told her i used her name and i said there's something wrong in my head it's not working right but i have a lot of help and i, I think i'm going to be okay and i think your mom and i are going to be okay but it's going to take some time and things are going to look different around here. That was about all. And I don't know where that, and I'm not saying it's right or wrong. It's just what I said. And it was absolutely my truth at that moment. Now, fast forward for her a few years, and now she has her own issues with alcohol. And so we start sharing about AA and then she assumed for a few years that all of my meetings were AA. And I I knew she assumed, and I let that assumption go. And then we were having coffee one morning, and it just kind of felt like the right time. I felt something in my chest, not in my head, where my crazy lives, but in my heart, where my higher power lives. And I opened a little bit of the door with, you know, I it's not only AA that I qualify for. In fact, most of my works are in a different fellowship. And we then went in. Uh, to my SA story, and I told her just about everything 
she doesn't need to know the details, but she she did hear that I was not faithful to my wife, her mother, um, that other people were involved in my acting out. Um, and, you know, by the grace of God, she didn't get up and run away. She She considered it, and I said... And I shared, you know, a lot of it was a beautiful thing. I, I started with all of my fears, again, using her name. I'm so afraid to have this conversation because my fear is you will get up and you will leave and I'll never see you again. Or you'll call me a crazy, you know, you'll call me some name and walk out the door. And those were real fears. And I think, you know, I may have, you know, welled up a little tear or two. Again, she was 20 at this, 20-ish at this time. Okay, so I'm not, I'm not addressing the 13 and the 9 in the question. Um, but this is my experience. Um, and exactly the opposite happened. She gave me a big hug and she said, and, and at this time, I don't know how many, I maybe six or seven years. And she, she just said, I'm so proud of you for your sobriety and for, for changing. And again, she had a little bit of AA time at this point. So I'm guessing that she has seen that sobriety isn't necessarily easy. It's not complicated, but it's not easy. And so from that point, she and I now talk about everything uh, recovery-related. Now, my youngest one just got back from spending five days, her and I alone. And again, the same fear, because she doesn't know. She was now younger, I don't know, 10 or 11, and we subsequently found out that she was dealing with her own issues of abuse that we did not know about. And so she was kind of checked out in her own world during the years that uh, my wife and I were exploding, or not during the year that my wife and I were really having our tension and exploding. Um, so she, w- whether it's true or not, she tells me she doesn't remember a period where mom and I were, where I was separated and living in a different bedroom in the house and mom was living somewhere. She says she doesn't remember that. Now, someday she might, she might remember that. Anyway. At the beginning of the trip, I said, you know, dear, there's, if there's, if there's any question you want to ask me about any of these meetings that I go to, you can just ask. And she said, you know, dad, it's working. Whatever you do works for you. And you and mom seem great. And uh, I don't have any questions. And, and I, thank you, God. And I was so happy, you know, cause I'm like, this is the first day of a five day trip. And I'm like, you know, I probably shouldn't have offered this on day one. This should have been a day five offer right before we pulled into the driveway. Um, but anyway, that's, that's, that's my experience with that. And what I tell people when I, my sponsors is I say fit spiritual condition, fit spiritual condition is the answer in my opinion to this question. Because God is the one that had to move me to open my mouth. When I wanted to say, and and I did at one point, I said, we're going to sit the children down and we're going to say, family secrets day, and we're going to just blast them with, and then I did this, then I did this, and they're going to go, ah, you know, and, and that's my answer. That's, that's me. That's my, when I say I want to do it, that's the first sign that, oh, we're on the wrong path. Um, so. The, the urging came from my chest, from what I call my higher power, and I opened my mouth to my oldest, and then I've and I've left the door open to my youngest. Um, hopefully, that helps whoever asked the question. I'll be around afterwards if that's not. And again, so much of this is specific. What did the kids see? What did they experience? Uh, the the Essetines from the talks they've given they they probably paint a different picture than what I'm painting. They say they knew, they wish someone had told them because it was the confusion is what killed them and trying to figure it out. So th- there is no one answer here. Please understand that, and that's just my experience. Thanks. This is not coming from my own personal experience, but yesterday we some of us attended a session called Breaking the Cycle. Did anybody attend that? Yeah. And um, there was a sexaholic mother with her two Essetines. And the message that the Essetines seemed to be giving was that as long as they felt that their mother was just in in addiction and not dealing with her stuff and not admitting this and not talking about it and thinking that they didn't know, there was the, the despair and the hopelessness and and always a fear of abandonment. It was as Mark just said. But once they, once she knew that they knew, it opened up a space for it to become safe to talk about. And hope 
dawned in the inside the family. And I think that's where, you know, kids, if, if they, if they don't have hope that things could change, it becomes very scary existence. And you could see the pattern throughout the family. So, so the mother was doing stuff that the, the oldest daughter knew about and the, the mother didn't know that she knew. But she was trying to protect her younger sister who was from, from, uh, because she felt like she was too young to deal with this. Turns out that the younger sister knew and the older sister didn't know that the younger sister knew. So this whole thing was going on and, you know, the goldfish probably was next. But, <laughs> so, you know, people know. But when it comes out into the open is when the healing begins and hope is restored. So I think that, uh, it all holds together. And, um, so anyway. Hope that that answers the question. Incidentally, if anybody has any additional questions, we have one more question that was submitted beforehand. If anyone does, you can hand them in to us now, or you can fill out a form, fill out a question, a card. Thank you. And uh, we'll be happy to answer it. Thanks. Okay, so this other question says, what do I make out of erotic dreams that don't involve my spouse? Well... Um, I just look at this as, you know, lust is lust. And when you're on the street and you're ogling somebody who's walking by, that's also not your spouse. And anybody who's looking at pornography, chances are that person is not your spouse. <laughs> Although you never know. <clears throat> and um, so once you understand that anything can become lust, I mean, you know, any inanimate object can become a lustful object. If that is not surrendered and it's it's just suppressed and pushed down, it's going to come out some way. It's going to come out sideways in uh, an explosion of anger or some other way. But it's also going to be, chances are, taken into your sleep state. And it may show up in dreams. And uh, so I don't think this is necessarily a unique category of uh, a phenomenon of, of lust. So erotic dreams that don't involve my spouse, well, heck, that was, that was what, you know, most of our erotic uh, fantasies were about. So it makes sense that if it's unsurrendered, it's going to show up someplace. And I, I don't necessarily see this as anything unique. But speaking of which, it's really important. Now, I'm one of those that does the daily sobriety renewal in which I bring out every single temptation that I experienced that day. I bring it out into the light. I surrender. I, if I haven't surrendered it during the day, which I try to do, or right on the spot for that matter, I will sort of do a cleanup by the end of the, the end of the day or in the morning, and I will surrender it to my renewal partner. Because anything that is unsurrendered is going to be kind of accumulating, uh, accelerating inside me. And, uh, but it's amazing that when I bring the God of my understanding into that temptation, that has power and that the, the temptation is, is dissolved. It's absolutely stunning, but it works every single time. So that's what I have to do with every temptation. It's a temptation. And, you know, you know, that phrase about, you know, I can't stop a bird from flying over my head, but I can't stop it from making a nest in my hair. So that's, it's at that stage I have to recognize, oh, another temptation involving whichever, whatever inanimate object, animate object, non-spousal, person and uh, deal with that way. Got anything you want to add? No, I, I, that was, no, nothing to add. Okay. Okay, so uh, what's the difference between sobriety and recovery? Um, we had a whole topic on this in San Antonio, and again, we can do this for the whole weekend. Uh, I'll try and be brief. Uh, sobriety is... Um, living your life in accordance with our sobriety definition, very simply. That's what we have a sobriety definition. Is that how you've lived today? Then you're sober today. Um, now, what is recovery? Recovery for me, and this is, again, this is going to be for me, is living my life in accordance with the literature. 
Uh, it's living my life in accordance with the steps. It's living my life in accordance with the traditions as best I can every day, far from perfectly. Uh, sobriety is necessary for me to enter recovery. The analogy that lots of groups use is sobriety is the ticket into the theater of recovery. Recovery is vast and huge. Sobriety is the door at which you enter. Um, there is, on, on the other hand, there is no requirement of duration of sobriety to begin recovery. We have people in our home group that have been sober for many years, and as part of their shares now, they'll say they didn't enter recovery for four years uh, of sobriety. They were famous for still having real big rage and anger and other issues. Uh, then we have people that can, you can watch them blossom as they tackle their character defects. They go through steps eight and nine, and they're living 10, 11, and 12, and they've been in the program two months. And you just go, wow, sometimes quickly, sometimes slowly. Um, recovery is a way of life. Sobriety is much more specific. And that's really all I want to say, because we could, again, talk about this for hours, but maybe the analogy of the, the door into the theater uh, will help answer that for the Essanons in the room. Anything to add? That's great. I'm going to ask you to do that one, too. Okay. Uh, should my wife and I well, – that's why I have glasses. Okay. Should my wife and I explain the nature of disease meetings oh, to any of our children ages 8 to 21 – the kids uh, sometimes wonder and ask where I'm going, uh, meetings and conventions. Um, whoever, uh, is this, a, did, did I, did someone miss, I kind of feel like we talked about that a little bit. I don't want to repeat myself. Uh, if, I know these are anonymous questions, if you're willing to own it and ask me, did you miss what I said earlier or is, did I not talk about what you need? Did, did you miss it? Okay, I got your point. Okay, gotcha. What we tell our kids or what we... Sorry, I didn't tell my kids where I was going when I went to act out. Right. I came up with something. So am I supposed to come up with something for meetings or just eventually... Okay, you're... Gotcha. And the, and the, the catch-22 is we're on a program of rigorous honesty, and yet here we are deciding how to lie to our kids. Okay. <laughs> All right. So what did we say? We we could very honestly look our kids in the eyes and say, we are going to a conference that's going to help our marriage. And that's what we told our kids for many years when we went to these things with the meetings. I'm going to a spiritual meeting where I learn to get closer to God. That's absolutely true. OK, so that's how we handled things like that. Um, again, my sick brain wants to give way too much. And, I, and with my Essanon wife, I find myself doing this too. I give too much information. Okay, I've had to learn to pull back and yet still stay truthful, but not so much information is necessary. Does that help a little bit? Or am I still missing? Well, let's talk after the tape then. If, if Okay, all right. And I understand the quandary. Rigorous honesty. Uh, we're going to St. Louis to, you know, watch the Cardinals play. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So you, you do want to avoid that. Because your kids know. They, my kids, they always know when I'm hedging. Okay. Okay. At this point, we have, um, is there, oh, there's another one? Oh, yeah. Okay. There's another one. Okay. <clears throat> Any experience, strength, hope, or practical strategies with dealing, for dealing with euphoric recall. This is another one of those where, you know, we may be just sitting here, you know, thinking about, uh, I don't know, data collection or something, and, you know, something will just pop into, pop into my brain. I can't prevent that from happening. I'm not necessarily trying to make it happen. I'm not looking around for things. It just pops in something it's it's no different for me than something that's coming into my uh, field of vision or uh, looking at a screen 
and there's a banner ad. And, you know, the way that they do these banner ads is they are very aware of what will attract the peripheral vision of somebody, you know, somebody will be actually be doing push-ups and you'll be thinking it's something else. And uh, so they have a way of attracting your attention. And, uh, you know, you, euphoric recall, I treat euphoric recall like any other temptation. And I simply handle it the same way. I just, I bring uh, the God of my understanding right into it and I say, okay, I offer this to you. And I can handle this. You can. I give it to you. And uh, my understanding of the way God works in my life is he could come in and collect the garbage out of my kitchen and, you know, deal, deal with it. But he probably is going to wait until I put it to the curb because I need to decide what's garbage and what isn't. But once I know it's garbage, I don't need to sift through and say, well, what color is that garbage? What's the density of that garbage? It's garbage. You know, I don't want to go through it. I already discarded it. I understand it's garbage. So whether it's euphoric recall or, you know, some kind of other temptation, it's all, it's all the same thing. It's lust. It's garbage. It's not, it's not my job to dissect it. It's just to recognize right away. And usually I can tell by the effect that it has on me, the physiological and spiritual effect on it. My chest closes up. I start, you know, I get more tense. I start shaking. No, it's it's the adrenaline flow. And so I say, okay. And I you know, I, I might say, Lord, in my case, uh, I give this to you. You take it from me. It's not you didn't intend it for me to for me to assimilate it or uh, hang on to it. And that's how I deal with euphoric recall. All right. I have nothing to add. Um Okay, <laughs> I'm, I'm chuckling at this next question. Uh, I'm just going to read it. Uh, as a newcomer to Essanon, with my qualifier in essay, I would like to gain some understanding on the sexaholic perspective in order to reach a point of more compassion for this disease. Can you offer a sexaholism for dummies explanation? <laughs> and my mind has already gone in about 16 different directions on how to, how to tackle this one. Um, again, just my opinion. Uh, th- there's some issues that come out as I'm, I'm thinking uh, about this, and I'm going to read be- behind. B- I'm going to read behind your question. Uh, the big book at the beginning is is clear that it takes an alcoholic to reach an alcoholic, and it takes, in my opinion, a sexaholic to talk to a sexaholic. Uh, I think my Essanon was very frustrated trying to understand the disease. And I am very grateful that you wrote disease in your question. That is a huge, huge step. And in my limited years of working with people whose wives or spouses are in the uh, Essanon Fellowship, that's the word that seems to get dropped sometimes is the disease and what I have is a mental illness. I can barely understand it myself. It's virtually impossible for me to explain it to my wife. But what I can do is tell her and show her, and I should have put those in different words, in different order, show her that I am working every minute of every hour of every day to stay sober and stay in the theater of recovery. Um, that may be enough to say, but again, my brain's saying, oh, keep talking, keep talking. Um, it, it is a wonderful thing to be compassionate, and it is a wonderful thing to understand uh, as best you can the disease, but you are limited because you don't have the disease. Um, and I, and I, and I, I empathize with your desire and then would caution you to make sure that your desire doesn't transfer into control. Because when you try and understand what you may actually, and I don't know, I'm just guessing what you may actually be working in your own brain is 
how can I control this thing because it hurts when it flares up, and I understand that. Um, but I, I just believe that it takes one to know one fully. Anything? Thank you. Okay, so the question, the person who posed the question is a newcomer in Essanon. Oh, that's what I just read. Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, pain. The person is in pain. The addict is in pain. Whether it's a sexaholic or a compulsive overeater or you know, a compulsive gambler or whatever it is. We all walk around with pain. And the pain oftentimes is because of something that I believe about myself. And I've come early on to the conclusion that I'm, and fill in the blank, I'm unworthy. You know, our, our literature in essay says I'm uh, inadequate, unworthy, alone, and afraid. So if I believe that I'm alone, it means I'm alone in this world. It means I'm scared to death. Now, if I walk around this world trying to navigate my job, my family, you know, my uh, relationships, my friendships, and I believe that I am all alone, or if I believe I'm inadequate, I'm just no good, I'm a, I'm a piece of trash, everything I do is going to be informed by that truth, or that lie, actually, but I believe it's true. I may intellectually know it's not true, but in my heart I believe it is true. Maybe a message that I assimilated so early on that I don't even know it's there anymore, but it's it affects everything. I walk in the door, I go, well, oh, see, everybody hates me. They don't even know who I am, but everybody hates me. So you walk around with this burden, and it's so painful that you want to do something to stop it. So you reach for anything. And that's where sexaholism is no different than any other ism. I'm in several isms. I'm in several programs. And my first stop is the sweet stuff. Because I know that sugar will take me right out of that depressive mood. It will spike. But the problem is I crash. So I have to do another spike until I crash again and another spike. And I yo-yoed like this my whole life. So, And it becomes subliminal. So when I walk into any uh, establishment where there's something in the, in the case that you know looks like it has glaze on it or something, you know, I, I'm just like, Oh, I want to just rip the, the the casing off and just you know go go for it. <clears throat> and uh, so I think that that's going to solve my problem, and it may solve my problem for three or four minutes, and then create three or four months worth of new problems or years. So to that extent, uh, I can have compassion on someone who may be stuck in this cycle in a substance or behavior that I don't particularly... Uh, gambling is not one of my things. So I can have compassion on a person who feels like, well, if I just win this thing, you know, get that million bucks, I'm going to redeem the hundreds of thousands of dollars in debt that I just went into and, you know, my family is living temporarily in a, in a shelter somewhere because <laughs> there's no house left. I can have compassion. That doesn't mean that the person can't take and shouldn't take responsibility for the recovery that has to happen. And that's where the steps come in. And the steps are the, are, are, are the uh, vehicle for, us, for finding out what the truth is. I don't have the truth. If I believe I'm a piece of trash, I suspect it's not true. If I am truly a creation of the God of my understanding, I am not a piece of trash. But I believe I am somewhere and I might read all sorts of uh, sacred words that say I'm not a piece of trash, but it, the problem is I don't have a lack of intellectual understanding. I have a lack of belief. So I need the truth, and the 12 steps help me get to the truth, and that's where recovery is very much an individual journey in the context of a community that supports me and... Um, so if that is something that you can identify with, uh, oftentimes an Essanon 
or an O-anon, or in any other anons may not exactly understand the sexaholism, but they certainly can understand what happens when they're standing in front of a piece of chocolate cake. And it's the same feeling, and the same degree of powerlessness. So it does translate. Of course, there is an added complexity about the marriage and faithfulness, but in, it, in, in its basics, it's the same issue of wanting to numb out pain versus face it and, and get to the truth. Okay, so um, at this point, hold on, please. Okay, we've got, we've got about 10 minutes, and um, we don't have any more written questions unless, does anybody have more written questions? Okay. Um, we can spend the next 10, last 10 minutes taking questions from the floor, as long as it's a brief question, please. And uh, is yours a follow-up question, Yoni? Okay. So why don't you come to the uh, microphones, because this is being recorded, and uh, ask the question right into the tape. Thanks. Yoni, Recovering Sexaholic. Uh, my follow-up question is, could you, uh, do you have an experience to share with us about the reverse situation? Um, I'm in an essay program. I'm married. Um, I don't know if my wife qualifies as SNN. I don't know how that works. Uh, I came here to the convention without my wife, but after hearing some of the SNN speakers up there, I'm thinking like, I think my wife's here. <laughs> like after hearing their story, I'm like, oh, I guess she is here. <laughs> so if you could like kind of, uh, a follow-up question is, like, if you could reverse the question that was asked, like, how does someone in SA hand... I mean, I know I'm supposed to keep my side of the street clean, and I do. And I'm very appreciative of my supportive enough for me to come here. I know all that. Um, and I, I don't really try to understand her so much, but I know it's, like, the other perspective. So is it possible for, for you to give some experience about that? Thank you. Um, so what I'm hearing is how can I get my wife to be a recovered Essanon because they sound really healthy up there. <laughs> yes. And I've only heard that question from every married guy that's come in. <laughs> Myself included, I asked the question. In God's, for the tape, the gentleman said, when does the miracle happen? The answer is, when you're ready and God's ready. And I have no control or power to get my wife to do anything. And the more time I spend trying to get her to do something, is less time I'm clean in my own side of the street, as you as you addressed. Her program is hope, her program, her entry into the program is her decision, how God gets her there is God's business. I, all I ever did was say, you know, there is this program called Essanon for people who are affected by my disease. And she glared at me with, get your away from me. And that's all I ever did. And then 10 years later, she's been in the Essanon for 10 years, so... I had nothing to do with it. And I, that's what I tell my sponsees. So the question, read in the reverse, would sound, as a newcomer to essay with my qualifier in Essanon, uh, I would like to gain some understanding on the sexahol and the Essanon perspective. Well, I guess it would be the es- in order to reach a point of compassion for the Essanon. <clears throat> well, I'm a double winner, and oops, uh, I think that the co- codependency side of the disease is the same process. It's a way of escape. If I have pain, it's much easier for me to deal with your head than my pain, and so I am either escaping into lust or I'm escaping into food or sugar or whatever it is, or I'm escaping into uh, other people's heads and trying to control their life and uh, anything to not deal with my own pain. And 
I, I, I find that you know, the, the epiphany for an Essanon is realizing I got my own stuff. I'm, I'm engaging in my own escapist behavior. I need to take a look at my life and I need to, to work my own program. And, um, that's a really key moment. You know, I spent a, most of my time inside other people's heads, assuming I understood what they said. Of course, they were always thinking about me and always thinking they're believing the same things I thought about myself, which is that I'm a piece of trash. So that was pretty easy. What was hard was st- stepping back from that and saying, wait a second, you know, they really probably have their own thoughts and I don't have a clue as to what they're thinking. So, yeah, I think that's good enough. Anybody else have a question? They will, they're bold enough to come up to the microphone and pose. Come on up here, please. I'm Bill. Bill, grateful, recovering sex addict. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, the if you, I, I had a follow up on sobriety versus recovery. I agreed and liked everything you said about that. I agreed with it a hundred percent. It seemed a little black and white. Um, wondered if you could talk more about the gray area. Uh, I've I've read something in the. Tools for Recovery book about technical sobriety. And it seems like there's a lot of behaviors that might fall into a gray area, not necessarily breaching that bottom line of sobriety, sex with self or others, but other things that we do that we think of that our brains uh, get us into. Uh, If you could talk a little bit more about the gray area of of the sobriety definition. <laughs> and, yeah, that's my question. Thank you. If you uh, haven't, if you've got a question, go ahead and start lining up here so we don't have the dead time on the space while people walk forward. Um, you want this first, or do you want me to take it? Uh, if you were... I'm not your sponsor. If you were my sponsor, I would I would say the motivation behind your question is not good. If you are looking at the gray areas, you've missed the point. Uh, for me, the the big book when it talks about the page ADU two or the list of how you know you're in recovery, kind of is what we call it or what I call it the list. And and my own heart, if I'm not happy, joyous, and free. And I'm not in recovery, and I'm probably not sober, and I don't know why I'm dealing with the gray areas of sobriety. And the, the sobriety definition is clear to me when I start entertaining lust in some form that, and we talked about this earlier, uh, as L.A. said, the depth of your, of your progressive victory as you find the secret places of your lust if I want to stay there and call it a gray area, I am not going to experience happy, joyous, and free. Um, I will not be in the theater of recovery. I'll be outside wondering, well, the door's smaller today or the door's bigger today. The door's changed, and that's the gray. Is this a door? Can I go in a window? Is that the gray area you're talking about to get into the theater? Um, I, I'm not... I'm not comfortable addressing a gray area. I would look at a sponsee and I'd say, tell me specifically what you're talking about. Uh, and then again, uh, Harvey has a great part about if in, uh, in one, uh, I think it's also in sex with self, uh, the, the, uh, the idea that if in doubt, it is lust. I mean, who are we fooling here? If you have to ask yourself, I wonder if this counts, well then, okay, insert cuss word, yeah, it's lust. (laughs) If I have to play, again, I have a mental disease. If I'm in here, I'm in the enemy's camp. I'm on the opposing team's home home, uh, arena. And if I'm thinking about it, I'm mixing everything with my disease, and I am not going to get a good, healthy output. 
So practically, now, okay, that's all the theoretical stuff. The practical part is I call my sponsor. I call other people and say, hey, I'm looking at a People magazine. Is that like porn? And, of course, if you call me, I'm going to say, yeah, because you're calling me, which means you are treating it like porn. Don't be a doofus. Okay. All right, and we're running low, so I'm going to just – I hope that answered or helped. We're actually out of time. really apologize for that. Um, so we'll have to take your question offline, okay? Okay. Anything you've heard at this meeting is strictly the opinion of the individual participant – Let's stand and say the third step prayer on the back of your schedules. Third step prayer. God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and to do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the knowledge of self, that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties, that victory over them may bear witness to those I will, of thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.